Hi, readers. Welcome to Books Connect Us from Penguin Random House. This is a podcast about staying connected with each other and the stories and authors who inspire us. Chung Li Nguyen, also known as Trungles, is a comic book artist and illustrator working out of Minnesota. He is particularly fond of fairy tales, kids' cartoons, and rom-coms of all stripes. His debut graphic novel, The Magic Fish, is a beautifully illustrated story that follows a young boy as he tries to navigate life through fairy tales and shows us how we are all connected. Now let's join Caitlin Whalen in conversation with Trung Lee Nguyen. Hi, Trung. Welcome to the Books Connect Us podcast. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Very excited to have you, especially as we're into month one million of quarantine and all of that good stuff. So one thing I always love to ask and find out right away is what have you done recently that has helped you feel connected or hopeful? Um, oh, gosh. So my uh, my spouse is a healthcare worker who works primarily in nursing homes. And so they recently tested positive for COVID. And so we've been staying home and trying to stay away from everyone. And it's been a long enough time that they're starting to recover and things are looking up. But in the meantime, we've been able to kind of connect with our neighbors and our friends and family members in really lovely material ways. People have been dropping off soup and baking us different treats and leaving them at our door. So it's just been a really, it's been a difficult time, but it's also been a really lovely reminder that we are surrounded by people who love and care about us. And so it feels like we're more connected and more tethered to our local community that way. It's been really, it's been nice, kind of bittersweet, but it's been nice that part of it. Well, I'm glad to hear that they're doing better and that you got such an incredible community around you. I think that's certainly something a lot of us are focusing on and grateful for right now. That's certainly a hard time for you to be going through. Yeah, it, With, it's been challenging. Yeah, I can, I can only imagine. Have you, um, prior to that, was there anything that you had done together during the quarantine times that was kind of your favorite activity or maybe your least favorite quarantine activity? Oh gosh, um, I have been settling in and kind of nesting quite a lot because we also just bought a house a couple months ago over the summer and so I'm starting to kind of develop my own relationship with the space and I'm decorating a little bit and we got the chickens kind of moved over. The chickens. And, <laughs> yes, I can see them right outside of my office right now. They're very happily gathering around their little bucket of food. Did you have the chickens before quarantine or were they a new addition? Yeah, no, we had the chickens starting last year, and I was very against the idea of having animals, just because I'm not someone who's very good at taking care of anything with its own personality and its own intestinal tract. That's kind of my standard there. <laughs> but then we got them as baby chicks, and I was obsessed with them for months, and so I just raised them, <laughs> because they're very easy to take care of, and I'm very, very attached to them now. <laughs> I'm so excited that the chickens have come up in this conversation. I'm sure all of the listeners want to know more about them. So do they have names? What Anything else about them? <laughs> they have very distinct personalities, which I did not know going in. Um, and they have an established pecking order. So their names are uh, Beatrice, uh, Letty, and Edwina. And that is also the order of their pecking order. Beatrice is on top. She always eats first. She pecks others very rarely because she knows she's on top. Letty is always a little bit insecure about her position in the middle, so she likes to try to bully Edwina a little bit. <laughs> they sound incredible. 
Yeah, it's been a lot of fun having them. They've been, my favorite thing is to just hang out with them in the backyard and do some writing or drawing. Well, I was going to say, do you think they'll ever be featured in a future graphic novel? Probably, definitely. They're very pretty. I really want to draw them into a comic book. I would personally love that. And so obviously, as you know, you have The Magic Fish, your debut graphic novel going on sale from this moment in just a couple of weeks. But for people listening in, you can go ahead and run out there and get it. You can put it in your hands right now. Maybe one day we'll have The Magic Chickens. But for right now, we just have The Magic Fish. Could you tell us a little bit about that novel? Sure. Uh, The Magic Fish started as an art project because I was looking at different ways to explore narratives about the ways that um, we kind of facilitate our identities through the use through storytelling. Um, And so I started kind of drawing um, just different mermaids um, because I've always loved Hans Christian Andersen's The Little Mermaid and kind of diving into all of the ways that he would kind of try to express himself through his storytelling, um, especially in moments where he didn't really quite have the words to communicate exactly what he was feeling or what he was thinking. He would uh, turn to storytelling to kind of get his point across. And we wouldn't really contextualize it um, in a very meaningful way until much, much later, but um, kind of looking at his work and kind of just drawing off of that sort of fairy tale influence was kind of where the project started. I didn't really have any notion that it was going to be um, the story that it is. And so The Magic Fish is sort of several fairy tales within a larger overarching story set in the real world. It's about a young boy named Thien and uh, his relationship with his parents, particularly his mother. And so he's discovering that he's gay and he wants to come out to his parents, but he's finding that he doesn't have a common language to talk to his parents about his sexuality or his feelings or um, his relationships with his friends beyond the fact that they hang out together. And so a lot of the story is him kind of going to the library and trying to find stories that kind of communicate his emotional journey to his mother and his mother sort of does the same thing and she kind of goes through her own arc as the story progresses. I mean, the wonderful thing about this story is it's a story about a story about a story about storytelling. It's something that just, as a book, of course, you're coming to it as a reader looking for stories, but it speaks to the power of stories and their connection and their access to different types of stories and experiences. And I just loved not only reading along as a reader, but looking at it as someone taking in the beautiful artwork that you did, it being a graphic novel, do you remember at the very beginning what was maybe the first idea or the first image, the first piece of art, the first line of writing, etc. that came to you? Yes. um, I was listening to my parents kind of, they like to retell stories about their time living in Vietnam. Since I'm a first-generation immigrant and I moved over with my parents and I was born in a refugee camp in the Philippines. And so they would tell me stories about what their journey out of the country and into a refugee camp and then over to the United States was like. And one of the images that really struck me was that the shove off from the beaches in Vietnam to kind of float on the ocean in a fishing boat with a ton of their um, uh, neighbors and friends um, in an effort to get off of the country was very visually moving to me. It was, um, they would talk about how dark it was and they would talk about how everyone kind of had to either hold hands or like try to quietly signal to each other without letting the authorities know. They would tell me about how when the authorities 
would catch you trying to escape. They would, you know, shoot bullets into the ocean. And I was in the midst of, like, going through all of my mermaid fairy tale stories um, to kind of start up with developing this book. And the image that came to my mind was, like, okay, what if within the context of The Little Mermaid, you have, like, people living under the ocean and they're discovering, like, sunken ships and people's personal effects at the bottom of the ocean or empty shells from bullets and trying to figure out what they are. And that kind of was the impetus for why I wanted that story to kind of be the fairy tale that tied everything together in the end for The Magic Fish. That's an incredible backstory. I wasn't aware of that. And it's powerful and... It's really interesting to hear the personal narrative that kind of birthed the what became the magic fish. And I think one of my favorite things about the magic fish is that there is a subtlety of tone and language, but the emotion is loud in this really wonderful way. And it does, it creates this really personal feeling. It feels like a personal read. I feel like you, the creator, sitting right next to me as I turn the pages and I go through the story. Had you always wanted to write a story that was based on some personal experiences? Um, You know what? I didn't start out thinking that it was going to be a very personal story, but um, I read somewhere that everybody's first novel is going to be a little bit confessional. And so I was like, okay, well, if this is going to be how it is, I'm going to lean into it. Just and so a lot right of it, <laughs> yes, exactly. And so a lot of it wound up being very personal and like kind of um, confessional in a way. A lot of it was based off of loosely my experiences kind of growing up and my attachment to like the local library and going to parochial school and like having a good set of friends who would kind of do their best to facilitate my experiences and, you know, understanding that my parents didn't really have the capacity or the, um, uh, uh, the, the agency to kind of usher me through the different milestones of being a kid and like being in middle school and like school dances and like social events and extracurricular activities. They didn't, they weren't aware of any of those things. And so I had, you know, friends kind of usher me through those things. And so that kind of, um, made its way into the story in a way that I still am very fond of. Yeah, I love the juxtaposition you had of Tian's life in school with his friends and how it was great and it was a full life, you know, trying to figure out who he wanted to be, what he wanted to be, who he loved, but then also juxtaposed next to the life he had at home that was also really rich with his family and with um, their culture. But when you put them side by side, it seems if you look from one perspective, one is lacking in ways the other is not. And the way you have to knit those two identities together. Is there some sort of message or um, hope that you hope readers, maybe who are children of immigrants themselves, would come to this story and take away? Yeah, certainly. I think, um, so the age range for the story is ostensibly young adults. Um, and so uh, what I wound up doing was telling a story about a middle schooler and um, his adult mother. <laughs> so it kind of averaged out to being sort of a young adult age. Um, but the message that I kind of ultimately wanted to get across is um, particularly for immigrant families, sometimes you just don't know what people don't know. Like people are kind of at where they're at and whatever they bring to the table is what they've got. And so sometimes people are just not really aware of what you know, you need from them. And sometimes you're not aware of what someone else might need from you. And there are different ways to kind of cultivate a relationship where you can find ways to either communicate or to get pretty close to making sure that the other person 
um, knows that you're listening to them as hard as you can. Um, that oftentimes happens in immigrant families where parents will have no context for any of the things that their kids are going through or what is important to them or like why their priorities are the way that they are. Um, and I, I know that there are a lot of kind of intergenerational immigrant stories that kind of center on the tension between family members because of this. And there certainly is a lot of tension when you just don't understand what your kids need. But I know that um, in my experience, parents do try really hard um, and they, um, you know, they find ways to either meet their kids where they are or their kids will kind of pick up on it. Like, I think that um, that sort of tension of not really belonging in one place or another is sort of helped along by the fact that you kind of have to grow up alongside your parents if you're an immigrant kid and you're sort of experiencing everything for the first time alongside them. And so that creates a different experience in and of itself. And I wanted the story to kind of bridge that gap between like that expectation of I want my parents to be this for me and kind of understanding like I'm in this place where maybe I have to do a little bit of this myself. Yeah, that's a really powerful message and one that I'm sure a ton of people out there will relate to. I'm the daughter of an immigrant as well, and there's so much that resonated, made me feel really validated as a reader. So I'm sure there are people out there who can't wait for that feeling as well. One thing I also really loved about this was, I think you mentioned the library a couple moments ago, telling how Tian would go to the library and find these fairy tales. And I just, I love the way that that illustrated a part of his access to language and to building community in their American town. And I just was wondering and curious, like, was it important to you to highlight libraries specifically and their influence on younger readers? Yes, absolutely. I loved the public library when I was a little kid and I haven't been back to a library in a little while because of self-isolation and COVID, but um, I, when I was really little, I think my first acts of rebellion were to sneak off to the library. <laughs> One of my earliest memories of like really wanting something was my mother would take me to the library. I must've been in like the first or second grade. And I was trying to convince her to just leave me there for the day and then come back and pick me up later and not understanding why she just wouldn't let me just hang out in the library all day long. <laughs> Um, and in hindsight, I'm like, okay, she was being a really good parent, not leaving her like eight or nine year old alone all day in a library. But um, it was something that I deeply wanted. Like I wanted to develop a relationship with this space and with all of this literature and with all of these books and all of these people who could help me find things that I wanted. The library was such a wonderful way for an immigrant kid to access the world and to contextualize their experiences. And that was something that I felt was really important to put into this book. Right. And it's that one place in the world as a kid you can go and people are begging you to ask more questions. Like you can ask your parents like, why, why, why all day long. You go to a library and you ask a librarian why. And they're like, well, let me find a book. Let's find an answer together. And I love getting to see kind of that experience inside of the magic fish. And I'm sure there are librarians out there who will be very excited to see that as well. Yeah, I hope so. Librarians are so special to me. They do wonderful, wonderful work, and I don't think that we give them enough, um, give them enough credit, or we don't really celebrate them enough. But honestly, like wonderful people. <laughs> well, everyone out there, if you're listening, we are celebrating librarians in this moment. Whenever you hear this part of the podcast, give some love to a librarian. <laughs> Um, speaking of librarians and language and libraries and all the words that start with L, including loving this book, language is of course such a strong theme here. And I wish I had a more articulate question for you, but I have heard you speak on and read your writing about 
language as a concept in this idea, and I was just hoping to give you an open-ended of language. What do you think about that? Uh, sure. So, I mean, I'm hard, I'm not a linguist at all, and so I tend to like to tell stories very much at eye level, um, so that I'm not kind of caught up in the academic aspect of things, but. Um, one of the things that made it really important for me to tell this story as a graphic narrative, as a long-form comic book, is um, that picture books were such an important part of my access to literature as a child, and they were for my parents as well, because in order to kind of like shore up their English speaking and reading skills, we would read books together, and we were kind of on similar reading levels for most of um, my growing up, and so we would go to the library and we would pick up picture books. Um, so that we can get as much context as possible. And that was sort of where I fell in love with illustration and I fell in love with comic books as well at the library. But uh, having images kind of be an access point for stoking curiosity for reading and for developing somebody's literary sensibilities is so important to me. Um, we find, I mean, I find personally that uh, we kind of have a habit of conflating images alongside text with um, things that are for children, things that are um, kind of very easy and they're fluffy and you don't really think very hard on them. But images um, and iconography are things that are sort of their own language. They have their own grammar. If you're reading within the context of a long form comic book, they have their own orthography. It's a very specific way of processing information and it's very accessible in a lot of ways, but we sort of stop trying to develop visual literacy when we you know, want to take literature seriously and we only want to read books with no pictures in them. And that is such a shame to me because there's such a rich visual tradition um, in terms of the way that we interface with culture. Um, and especially within the context of queerness, for example, so much of like Western queer culture is centered on a lot of visual cues and a lot of pop culture references throughout the history of Hollywood, throughout the history of theater and entertainment. And so if you don't have um, a really developed eye for the kind of colloquial iconography that we develop around culture, you are missing out on a lot of the context that makes up the richness and the texture of the world. Um, and so it was, it was very important for me to make sure that images were a central part of the experience of the magic fish. If I'm going to make a book about what it means to try to communicate that you love someone when you lack the words, you need to have images alongside it. I think that's a really um, accessible and uh, kind of a loving way to articulate all of the different ways that you can care for someone. And so that's kind of, that's my bit on language. <laughs> no, it's fascinating because you're so right that spoken or written language, it's not the only way we communicate with one another in our day-to-day -day lives. So why should that be the only way we tell our stories that speak to so much who we are and who we're going to become? I'm absolutely right there with you and honestly chasing behind you, following the path you're setting for me. <laughs> um, when you write your graphic novels or when you do your illustrations, I'm curious, what come, is there something that comes first for you? Is it the words when you sit down to start mapping it out? Or is it the color scheme? Is it the characters themselves, the art itself? What starts it for you? Oh man, this is actually a very difficult question for me because I don't really consider myself to be someone who's an extremely um, experienced um, comic book storyteller. I'm, I'm very new to this process. And so this was my very first um, graphic novel. And so 
I am still feeling out my process for how to construct a story this way. And it's so difficult because um, you mentioned before that the emotions were very loud, but when I look at the script, it feels very pat. All of it feels very perfunctory to me and nothing really comes across until I pair it with the images. And so the process that most um, long form comic book storytellers will go through is they'll, you know, there's going to be a scripting process and then that goes through editing and then you draw thumbnails to kind of give people a sense of what your pages are going to look like and that goes through editing one more time and then you pencil and then ink and color and then you add the text in with it. And so it's this very um, kind of, um, it's sort of reflective of greater um, kind of the big two comics when you're, you know, making a superhero comic, you have different people do different parts of the kind of assembly line. And then you kind of do that all yourself if you're making a long form um, comic book alone. Uh, but I'm also finding that it's difficult for me to do that because the ways that the speech bubbles uh, interact with the space is really integral to the ways that I like to tell stories. Um, and so that's a little bit of a technical consideration that I have to think about when I, you know, draw a story. Um, but I find it really difficult to start with just the text. I have to incorporate some of the drawing as well. And so it's a very cumbersome process of making sure that the images are right and that the text is right and that they work together in an optimal way. Well, they did. Let me tell you, they really did. <laughs> so whatever you're doing, I hope you keep doing it. Yeah. I'm still I refining also... that process, but I'm, I'm finding myself to be a little bit more confident in it now. <laughs> well, I saw recently uh, something a colleague had put together for you. You had done a reading, a virtual reading of part of the magic fish. And what was really interesting was on the screen, you can see the pages of the graphic novel with the art and the speech bubbles. But as you were reading it audio, you were adding in some of the Tian said or Tian thought, because there are things I could see as visually on the page, seeing that and picking it up, reading it myself and looking at the images together. But it had never dawned on me if you read aloud a graphic novel how much you'd really be missing in the subtlety and the context and the emotion, the way their face looks when they say something is really powerful. And it's a really magical way of blending the narration and the art and the words and the emotions all together. It's a, it's a true masterpiece. And I'm in awe of how you put together so many pieces. And it's such a beautiful story. So I'll stop fangirling. I'll ask you a new question. <laughs> um... So in your story, there's the fairy tales. You each, that when they come together, they all have a different influence, I believe, or it feels. Um, and I've heard you talk a little bit about that, like based on where you are in your life, how you come to imagery, it dictates what you take away from it. How did you tie in different influences into the different parts of the narrative as you were creating it? Um... Uh, I mentioned before that I like to stop to tell stories at eye level. Like there's this, like I come from a lot of like very academically oriented people. And so whenever we talk about, you know, um, identity, there's always going to be discussions of like systems of oppression and like how we navigate those different things. But when, you know, you're an author who, you know, is queer or is an author of color or whatever marginalized identity you find yourself in, you're not trying to edify people about your life every time you talk about a story. You're just trying to kind of tell stories about where you are. And I really believe in wanting to, you know, give people space to tell their messy stories and not have to feel the burden of educating the world about who they are. <laughs> um, and so uh, one of the 
uh, one of the things that uh, I thought about really hard while I was going through each of the different um, visual styles of the fairy stories is the ways that the characters would envision that world. And so the first uh, fairy story is um, based on a German variant of Cinderella. The second fairy story is Thumkam, which is the Vietnamese variation of Cinderella that's really closely related to the Chinese version. And then the last story is not a Cinderella story at all. It's The Little Mermaid, um, really loosely based on the Hans Christian Andersen iteration of the story. Um, and so each of the stories is told by a different person. And so I wanted the stories to reflect the visual imagination of each storyteller um, to kind of give the story a unique and memorable flavor, but also to communicate that the ways that we interface with iconography is totally different depending on who we are, what our preferences are, and where we grew up, what our culture looks like. So the very first story, like it's, um, so Tian is reading it with his mother, and so he's, um, it's through his imagination. And so he's probably grown up with, you know, like a lot of, you know, Disney movies. And he's seen the way that like princesses are illustrated in like the Western American imagination, totally decontextualized from whatever their historical representations are. And so I wound up doing a lot of research into what was a really good mid-century dress, you know? And so I looked up like really fun, like uh, Givenchy gowns and kind of different Amazing. couture houses at the time and um, kind of figuring out like, okay, this is the reason why we think of princess dresses this way is because, you know, Disney popularized this with its mid-century princess stories that sort of saved the company in, you know, uh, the 50s. And so we've have, we have like Cinderella and Sleeping Beauty and like the ways that their dresses are really iconic in the American imagination and how they're really different from where the stories are supposed to be set. But that's what we think about um, on, in our corner of the world when we think of princess stories. And then we move over to the second story, which is told um, through Helen's visual imagination. And so she kind of grew up with um, maybe not a lot of really fantastical elements. And so I had to look into Vietnamese dress from like the 60s before the war and how some of the elements of the dress dresses are kind of politicized in ways that I didn't really recognize or understand. And then the last story I sort of just let loose and had a lot of fun with like the kind of like 80s um, era because that was when The Little Mermaid came out in 1989. And I wanted to, you know, do a little snapshot of what that world might have looked like so that, so those are th kind of the the ways that I approached the visual storytelling and making sure that everyone had their own space to have a story told from their perspective. Yeah, and it totally expands upon how the reader comes to know the character. It's, it's truly sometimes you wish you could see what it looks like in somebody else's head, and that's exactly how it feels. Like you're getting this little sneak peek behind the curtain. Did you have a specific reader in mind when you were putting the magic fish together? Oh, I did not. <laughs> I uh, I recused myself from that responsibility, and I just wanted to tell a story that was fun. Um, and my editors were very supportive, <laughs> so I didn't I didn't think that hard about what my audience was going to look like. I kind of um, I'm of the mind that like if a story is for you, then you're going to enjoy it, and if it's not for you, you'll find something else. And so it's not going to be for everyone, but I'm sure it'll be for someone. And I hope that for those someone's, the story is special. Oh, it'll be for many someones. I can promise you that. <laughs> this novel also has it's a lot in themes of identity and family, language, um, and all that good stuff. 
do you have an idea of what you what themes you'd like to touch on in the future what themes you'd like to create about next time um one of the things that i did not get to explore in this book um as um in depth or as eloquently as i would have liked um i almost wound up including uh four or five different fairy tales because there's a segment in the story where tian's mother helen goes back to vietnam and she finds that everything about the place where she grew up has completely changed and there are a lot of really interesting fairy tales that kind of touch on that, like Irish ones in particular. There is the legend of Asheen, and he's riding around on his horse in Tirnanog, and he's told not to step foot on the land. Otherwise, all of the time that he's actually spent in, you know, the summer land is going to catch up to him. And then he does, and then he ages 300 years instantly. And then there's the story of the children of Lear, where they're cursed and turned into swans and they fly around. And then it all has a little bit to do with the Christianization of a land, too, if you're talking about like Irish <laughs> mythology. Um, but then there's also um, one of my aunts ended up immigrating to Japan. And one of the stories that um, I got from her when I was really little was um, uh, a story about what's it called? Uh, Urishima Taro, I believe, and the Turtle Princess. And that was a story about a young man who saves a turtle who winds up being a princess from the ocean. And then he marries her and he goes to live with her and he spends, you know, a little bit of time there. And then he misses his, he misses the place where he grew up. And so he goes back and he doesn't recognize any of it. And before he returns, she's given a box that he's told never to open. And in a moment of despair, he opens up the box and all of the time that he actually spent under the water, even though it felt very short, passes by and a hundred years goes by and he dies. And so it's, so those themes of like kind of missing the development of a place while you go away, um, kind of finding yourself not recognizing the language for you, that you used growing up and being away from your language and also kind of being away from the physical space. And especially for people who, you know, have come from places that were rapidly developing you don't recognize any of the streets that you used to walk down. You don't recognize the beaches or the towns. The buildings are all different. The skyline is completely different. And that particular brand of sorrow is not something that I was able to really explore in this book, but I feel like there's probably room for that later on in a different project. If I feel like doing something heavier later on. Oh, I'm ready for it. That's, I mean, that's because I think also what you're hinting at there is that you as a person, when you go back to these places, has also changed. And the person you remember being there is different. I, I'm, I'm ready for it. If you want to talk after we do this interview and talk about it more, I'm ready to read it. I'm ready to sit next to you. But that sounds like an amazing next step for this. And I love that it's also still tied to this idea of the fairy tales and how important they are to understanding experiences that we're having today, even if we don't necessarily have the same magic right in front of us and the same kind of narratives but it's the same feelings it's similar problems that's really exciting to hear um do you have any advice for creators listening in as someone who's got their very first graphic novel coming out oh man um i think one thing that i wish that i knew before i started um making a, a, a really long form comic book was that there's no really one right way to do it there are ways that are efficient and there are ways that work for a lot of different people, but ultimately everyone's process is going to be very different. I sought advice from a lot of colleagues and a lot of friends about how they go about their process and none of it worked for me. <laughs> and I think 
And they were all very, very different um, pieces of advice. And all of these people have created beautiful stories um, and really compelling comics, but I <laughs> um, would not be able to replicate their process. It's so many different elements put together. So the process is necessarily going to be unique to you as a creator. So if you're making Absolutely. a graphic novel, like there's going to be very few instances where someone's advice is going to be helpful to you. <laughs> but it's a good starting place. Jump off from it. So one of the last questions I always want to ask too is right now or recently or looking ahead, what have you been reading? What's on your TBR to be read list? Oh my gosh. Okay. So I have to pull this up because I have <laughs> a and ridiculously long TBR list and I'm so behind. And also because times have been very stressful, I have like a TBRR list, which is a to be reread yes. list. Um, oh, I love that. So the books that I have on my TBR list right now are The Mermaid, The Witch, and the Sea by Maggie Tokuda Hall. So I'm very excited about that. It came highly recommended to me. Um, the Hundred Thousand Kings Kingdoms by N.K. Jemisin. Um, I also have Fairy Tale as Myth and Myth as Fairy Tale by Jack Sipes. Um, which is not, you know, like a novel, but it's something that I should look more into if I'm going to be continuing to explore fairy tales and personal narratives in the future. <laughs> um, and I also want to go back and reread all of Lloyd Alexander's Pregain books because they were so influential to me growing up. And I read them, I think, maybe two or three years ago, and they still resonated. And right now I'm kind of feeling like I need those themes to come up again. I need a little bit of, like, Welsh-influenced mythology <laughs> <laughs> That's a fascinating TBR list. I love hearing how different each different piece of it standing alone. And what it reminds me of is I took a fairy tales class in college and I remember reading the original German iterations of things and my world was rocked at how intense some of those stories were. So I can't wait to hear your thoughts on everything once you reread and go back through that whole list. But it's a great TBR and a great recommendation for people listening in to do the same kind of reading. <laughs> My last question for you is, how can your readers connect with you? Um, I can be reached on Twitter and Instagram at Trungles. I also have a website, trungles.com. And so they're all just T-R-U-N-G-L-E-S, pretty much everywhere. That reminds me, Trungles, you go by Trungles on a lot of your social media handles. Where does that name come from? How did you start being called Trungles? Um, it started in high school. Uh, when I was in high school, I found that the one really annoying weakness that I had was that I could not for the life of me get over my stage fright so whenever I had to give a speech I would just blank and I couldn't do anything about it and so I was like okay I have to figure out a way to do this and so I joined the speech team and was like okay I'm just gonna dive right in I'm gonna figure out how to do this public speaking thing and speak extemporaneously with like a little bit more confidence and it helped me a lot and so at one point I won at some competition and my name is Trung Lee Nguyen, and the person who was reading my name aloud smushed my first name and my middle name together and called me Trungle in front of an auditorium full of other teens. And I was like, not no, actually, I like that. <laughs> and so I just kept, <laughs> Can embrace kept the nickname. I embraced it, and it's been my handle ever since. That is an incredible story, and I'm so glad we all got to learn and hear about that, because Trungles is a great nickname. really do love it. <laughs> 
So thank you so much for spending the half hour with us, with me today, and answering all of the questions. It was an absolute joy to get to talk to you and hear more about the magic fish, which everybody should swim out to their nearest bookstore and pick up a copy of. Is there anything else you want to say before we close this out? Um, no, I think we've covered everything. You asked such great questions. Just thank you so much oh, for talking you. with me, and thank you for having me on. And thank you, and all the best to your chickens. Hey listeners, I want to tell you about a new podcast that I'm really enjoying. Dirt Cheap is a new podcast that digs deep into the dollar bins of used bookstores in search of pulp, sass, and questionable grammar. Guided by hosts Amanda Meadows and Jeffrey Golden, each season of Dirt Cheap will explore a forgotten and discarded pulp novel culled from the dustbin of literary history, reenacting its pages through narration and sound design, stopping and starting to respond and bring its oddity and hilarity occasionally into relief. Amanda and Jeffrey bring these rare, bizarre stories to life each week, chapter by chapter, with a heavy dose of humor and a dash of schadenfreude. In this upcoming season one, they read the book Murder in the Glass Room, an L.A. noir novel that almost became a blockbuster film. Set in Los Angeles in the 1940s, it's a funny, surprising, and very dated tale about a murder starring a petulant bookie named Phil, who's obsessed with following that murder and also really into interior design. Phil is not a real detective, but he starts to act like one when his wife is murdered and he's the primary suspect. You don't need to read the full book to listen. Hosts Amanda and Jeffrey will guide you chapter by chapter, extracting excerpts and providing their own comedic commentary and storytelling styles. Join Amanda and Jeffrey in the efforts to solve this mystery together and have some fun along the way. Subscribe to Dirt Cheap now wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to Books Connect Us. For more great book recommendations and information about your favorite authors, feel free to follow Penguin Random House on social media or visit penguinrandomhouse.com. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard, go ahead and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts as it helps more listeners to find our show. This podcast is produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. I've been Aaron Leaf, and until next time, this has been Books Connect Us.